into the moonlight. Into the Hello again and welcome to Into the Mothlight. When we decided to start a podcast, we put together a list of names of people whose work we admired and who we would like to talk to. Artist filmmaker Andrew Cotting was one of the people on that list, so we were delighted when he agreed to give us an interview. We've studied his work closely over the past years and had the chance to see work in an installation setting, in cinema spaces and as a performance piece. I find his approach to filmmaking fascinating and his enthusiasm for what he does almost addictive. It's also fair to say that he's had an influence on the work that I've made over the years and to be honest I could have spent a couple of hours just chatting with him about what he does. Andrew is currently touring with his new film, Lek and the Dogs, based on an award-winning play by Hattie Naylor. The film has gained many reviews in the mainstream media, including a six-minute review from Mark Kermode on BBC Radio 5 Live. When I met Andrew in the Filmhouse Cafe in advance of the recent Edinburgh screening, I asked him what he made of this level of attention. Into the moth light. It's always very pleasing. I think Mark Commode um, stumbled into my work actually up at the Edinburgh Film Festival when I um, had my second feature, and that was This Filthy Earth. And he interviewed me. Uh, this would have been way before podcasts or anything like what we're doing now. I think it might have been for uh, Channel 4. And he was really enthusiastic about the film and saw a lot in the work that's, uh, that was kind of there, but the way he revealed it to me uh, was incredibly articulate, and I was surprised that he liked it. I had him down as being something a little bit more mainstream. But in terms of how it affects you, and it's weird, when I, when I get a, a review, somebody else sent me a review a couple of days ago from the Times, and it got one star, and um, the reviewer, I can't remember the name of the reviewer, but he said he would rather uh, sleep with uh, dogs on the street than sit through the again. film again. Yeah. And, 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 and it, in, in, in a strange way, a perverse way, that's the kind of um, response that I'm expecting. And it happened with Gallivant. When Gallivant came out, I was full of trepidation, and there was this wonderful review from the Daily Mail. And um, the, the, um, the critic suggested the film should have been drowned at birth like the runt of a litter. So w- when I heard that, I, th- I was very comfortable. I kind of thought, well, it's shocking and it, it kind of it hurts. It, it kind of wounds you. But at the same time, I think, well, it's, it's obviously going to upset most. But it's still what I do is, I guess, still wantonly experimental in terms of the mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can have all your independent uh, American films. You can have all your indie kind of um, films over here. I mean, films like, you know, Lim Ramsey, Andrew Arnold's films. Uh, I'm just thinking now of people like um, uh, Cla- Claire Barnard, who's a really good friend. I mean, you, you could never describe any of those films as experimental. I mean, they're wonderfully different from the mainstream. But, you know, the narrative is the thing that drives them. Whereas for all of my work, really, even Filthy Earth and Ivor, there's, um, there's something slightly berserk and unresolved and wantonly experimental about them. And this possibly more so than the other two. Mm-hmm. So what was it about the, the subject of Lek and the Dog that you thought... Plural. Sorry, Lek and the Dogs. <laughs> even though there's really only one dog that we get to see in the film. I'm not even going to edit that out. Right, I mean, I'm going to keep that. Yeah. So what, what was it about the subject matter and the play that you thought, hmm there's something here that's a film that I would like to, to, to see and therefore make? Well, it was never that uh, clear. It was never that lucid. It was more to do with the relationship that I have with Hattie Naylor. 
and we were at the Slade together. She was an undergraduate when I was doing my postgraduate. Um, for some reason, I, I, I found myself in the basement quite often editing on an old 16mm uh, Steenbeck. They had a sound room. She was uh, really just experimenting, playing around with, uh, with sound. And we kind of um, got on really well. I had a fantastic kind of flirtatious relationship. Um, but more than that, there was integrity to what she was doing within a fine arts school, working with sound in the same way that I was at an art school working with the moving image and performance and, and, and sound. That kind of um, left a wonderful, euphoric kind of taste in, in the mind. And then maybe 10 years, 15 years later, uh, I heard um, a play on the radio which was called Leck and the Dogs. Uh, Ivan and the Dogs, Ivan and the Dogs. And it was by Hattie. And, and, and then we reconnected not long after, or possibly even before that was broadcast. And we, we met up and unbeknownst to me, she had seen Galavant. She'd completely blown away by, by the film. She'd named her theatre company in Bristol, Galavant. And so of course that, that was good for my ego. And it endeared me straight away to, to wanting to work together. And, and she, she kind of pitched um, W.G. Seabold's uh, Rings of Saturn as a, as a possible deconstruction, uh, re-kind re of uh, reimagining of, of, of that, uh, that book by, uh, by Seabold. But it, it, it wasn't really doing it for me. And then when I went along, I think it was in 2010, uh, to see um, Ivan and the Dogs had been transferred to the West End. It was playing in Soho Theatre. I saw it on the stage. And I kind of felt that there was something there that I could run with. Yeah, and the fact that it was a monologue, the fact that, uh, as with the radio play, there was so much beautiful sound design, uh, probably a legacy from her, her time in the basement at the Slade. And I kind of thought, well, if she's willing to, to allow me to run with it as a, as a kind of, as a springboard, as a catalyst, and she was, she was incredibly generous with, with what I was kind of proposing, what I normally propose, I don't know what the, the finish, I knew, I wanted it to be featuring, that was it. You know, and I knew that the, the story, was going to be the beginning, the building block to something else. But I, you know, by then there was loads of other stuff that I wanted to weave into, into the finished film. You know, in in, in particular this idea of Lek, um, you know, left over from this filthy earth and an eyeball. Uh, and it was a kind of spurious conceptual idea of having him as the. Uh, as a central character with a voice and this will be the third part of an Earth trilogy the first being on the ground the second being above the ground and this being very much underneath the ground so conceptually I think that's, uh, that's something that she she accepted mm -hmm. and, and, and thereafter and then me also wanting to tell a lot of the story with archives so it wasn't it wasn't what one would imagine would be it would be Mm -hmm. Plus, and it need, this is important, I will keep forgetting to, to credit Salon Pictures and the BFI, who, who were also really keen that I should push uh, into that territory, that kind of, that grey, foggy, foggy area between, say, documentary and narrative, experimental and mainstream, well, not mainstream, but maybe experimental and, and, and in the indie world. And, and they all just le left me alone to get on with it. You know, I was surrounded by people that really kind of believed in, in this experiment. Mm -hmm. So when you're when you're thinking about that mix between experimental and and the narrative and the the concepts that came about from the the, the play, how do you start in your mind to put the bits of a film together? Do, do you sit down and uh, is there storyboarding or is that a bit more fluid than that? There was definitely a script. So we you know we used Hattie's uh, original uh, stage play. That was that was I could you know literally I. I 
put that into Microsoft Word and then started unpicking it and then started introducing ideas. This was very much for the treatment to pitch to, to the BFI. And suddenly Lizzie Frankie was kind of vital in, because she knew my earlier work. She's, she's been with me from the get-go when she first read a script that I wrote with Sean Locke called Smart Alec. And she was a reader for the BFI. And she was heading the, you know, the Edinburgh Film Festival for almost eight years. She took over from Mark Cousins. So she kind of knew what she was getting. And so when we, when we went in to pitch it, by then there was, I guess, about a 24-page treatment which had elements of the original Ivan and the Dogs in it. In fact, at the time, I think it was still called Ivan and the Dogs. Um, but slowly, there were kind of great chunks. There were paragraphs where I said, you know, at this point, the image begins to disintegrate. Or we're looking over the Atacama Desert. Um, at, at, uh, at a ghost town and, and, and I had this idea that when uh, I, I, Ivan surfaced uh, at the end of the film that he would be in a kind of uh, desolate post-apocalyptic landscape which had somehow been preserved and, and having been to the, to the Atacama Desert what, 36 years ago it always it stayed with me and so there was a bit of a ploy so I kept introducing this notion into the treatment that you know it was the Atacama Desert hoping that you know we might push up the budget because you know with, with the archive that I use we could have could have possibly got away with the whole thing without having to, to go anywhere. We could have made the whole film. But one, once that was kind of green lit, things began to fall into place very, very easily. Mm -hmm. And what was that environment like to, to work in? So to go over to Chile and, and actually shoot in the desert, fairly different to a lot of the locations that you've used in, in the south of England, for example. Mm. Similar process, you know, you go out there and you, you don't have a preconceived idea too much of what it is that you're hoping to get. You, you know that, well, I knew the landscape. You go with minimal crew, so I go with my uh, dear close friend and brilliant uh, DOP, Nick Gordon-Smith. Uh, I took uh, one of his ex-students who was kind of like a fixer, who uh, was born in uh, Chile, grew up in uh, America, did a crash two-year course at the Brighton Film School and then found himself now where he was living in Scandinavia. And he, he's young, enthusiastic, loved my work. So he was kind of our fixer, production manager, and then of course Xavier Leck. So the three of us just flew out there. And when we got there, an old friend of uh, JP's, uh, big old beards, driving a truck, met us at the airport. And that was it. It was just a four lumpen blokes going off into the desert to see what might happen. So, and in many ways, it's, you know, my process there is like working on the journey works with, uh, say, Edith Walks or by ourselves, even Swandown, where you, you, you just target a particular bit of the landscape and you, you wait for things to happen. Or, and, and that's when we found the, uh, the desert of shoes. And, and at the end, the climax of the film, when you're looking down at that graveyard, which is actually a pet cemetery in which 90% of the animals buried are dogs. You know, that stuff just seems to, to, to kind of fall onto your lap. It's, um, it's a lovely way of working. And then you can weave that. You know, Stuart Lee's talked about this before, about, about my work. He goes on about, oh, yeah, cutting. He just goes out into the landscape with some people and waits to see what happens. And he, he reverse engineers meaning into it afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know, some people say, oh, that's very, very disingenuous. But it's, it's spot on. That's, that's kind of what I do. Into the moth light. Into the moth light. In terms of the cinematography, um, so I think a lot of your work, especially some of the shorter pieces, I find the way they're shot quite claustrophobic. Um, but obviously you have this desert landscape to work with now with your cinematographer. Mm. And I think from memory, shots that looked like they were perhaps even taken from a camera on a drone. So was that a challenge or something that you really embraced to work in a different space? 
Yeah, yeah. I think the, the drone in particular, one of the things that I was a little bit apprehensive about at the beginning is that I wanted the drone to move. We shot a lot of stuff where the drone was following Xavier through the desert. And um, it was, I, I wanted to, to, to frame the enormity of the desert. And, you know, we didn't have uh, rigs. We didn't have, uh, uh, you know, fixes and gaff I mean, gaffers and cranes and that. So the drone was a, a kind of cheaper way of doing it. And Nick in particular, Gordon Smith, had um he kind of wanted to work with drones, but one of the things that he was adamant about, uh, certainly looking at the rushes, is that he wanted he wanted the drone to be fixed. So most 90% of the shots that I use, apart from the very end, the drone is kind of hovering. It's like a god's eye view. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't move and do that stuff that drones normally do. So you, a lot of people have questioned, you know, have, have I got a really big tower? Was I filming from the top of a mountain? And and so the th that point of view is very particular to the film. And as, as you just pointed out, it works as an antidote, the vastness, the meta, and big, big scale. And then suddenly we're underground and we're watching a character, Lek, uh, who could be Kurtz from you know Apocalypse Now it could mm -hmm. be Marlon Brando mm -hmm. in the shadows so you're you're looking at every last kind of detail his nostril hair his stubble you know his grimacing his flinching his breathing uh, and then behind him hidden in the shadows is a dog you think is a dog's eye and then next thing you know you're into archive and you spill out of the archive and you're back into these vast kind of desert landscapes and that was that came about through the rhythms that are kind of force themselves upon you when you're editing you just think what, what do I want now I don't want more of that I want something different what have I got okay let's go to the landscape how are we going to get to the landscape very easy you, you, you find a bit of archive which might connect you or it might be a, a, a bit of a script that connects you that uh, it might be something you can construct to connect you but you then you find those rhythms in the edit suite mm -hmm. And obviously the archive stuff plays a really important part in your work, the you know audio and moving image are you a person that that collects archive in case you need it or, or, or and then you still, you can pull it out of the bag when yeah. the time's right yeah yeah the answer to that is yeah and my archive grows all the time and I have a really healthy relationship with Screen Archive Southeast who work out of uh, University of Brighton they've been really generous with uh, with the material that they uh, license for me to use unlike so Getty you know Getty's lots of stuff that I like from the BFI but the, the BFI archives now is managed by Getty and therefore you're looking at a lot of money to use that so I was very very kind of limited in terms of the budget what I could use so I I just went back and we had a buyout with Screen Archive Southeast. I go there once, sometimes twice a year, just sit down and look at stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you'd file it away, log it. One of the uh, one of the people that worked there, she has a photographic memory. She's just somebody that sits there logging Super 8 Standard 8 16 mil archive that's bequeathed from families. And you just think, you know, and it goes in. She makes notes, and you go straight to her. She's she's like a a Google machine, and. Yeah, without them I'd be lost. The film would not be nearly as rich as it is. Into the moth light. Into the moth light podcast. Tell me a bit about your editing process. So I, I get a sense that you come back from the desert with your stacks of, of images. You've got your own archive to kind of pull from. It, is that almost like a, a palette and you sit down in front of your Mac and think, okay, where, where do we start? And are you just sort of drawing things in or are there post-it notes on a wall or how, how do you kind of go about constructing something? Uh, the post-it notes kind of inside my head and I block it one of the reasons that the film you know there's spurious chapters in it is that um, um, 
the, the chapter headings, which uh, they don't really always pertain to either what you've seen or what, you, what you're about to see. They, they kind of feel, again, slightly wanton and pseudo kind of intellectual, pseudo philosophical. And some of them are borrowed from Michel de Montaigne, some of them are borrowed from Serrain, some of them are borrowed from Ian Sinclair, some of them are borrowed from Alan Moore, some of them are borrowed from. And, and they go through me as a cipher, like, and mash them up. But those, those, in a way, give me kind of little holding uh, pens, if you like. So I work in little sections. So I think when that belongs into that particular section, that's the beginning, that's the end, and then on my timeline there'll be a gap, and then I start another one. I think, oh, this is this is where this title might belong, uh, and then the things that fall into that next kind of corral is um, is how the rhythm begins begins to unfold. Mm -hmm. Okay, on this in this film, I had um, Hattie's brilliant writing certainly for the first twenty minutes, and I was being very faithful to that mm -hmm. um, in terms of what we'd we'd written together, and you know had, had appeared initially in, the, in you know in her stage play, but then that also gets stretched and edited and subverted, and then and then that's spoken over. So the, you know I use the three sibyls, the three wise women. That, commenting on the the film as it involves the animal behaviorist the uh, the child psychologist and the body uh, uh, philosophist in a way and then of course Alan Moore is the kind of wizard um, an eternalist so that as, a, as another layer you can introduce into something which is ostensibly a narrative suddenly takes you into a different realm so it's very I guess structural and, and I only wanted their voices really to appear to appear when we were looking at an empty landscape so that creates another rhythm that I then uh, work around or work into the structure so mm -hmm. It's kind of like doing a, a bit of a jigsaw where you're doing, you know, the edges aren't edges because, you know, some of them have been chewed and some of them you've lost, but you're attempting to fill in the gaps within that jigsaw. And are you looking for happy accidents at the edit in the same way that you might do when you're out shooting in the desert, for example? All, all the time, all the time. Yeah, and those happy accidents always appear. Um, and I, I think you know, maybe when you've been working in this way for a while, which is you know, very collagic, you have to just have the confidence that something will happen. You need to look. You have to, you, sometimes you have to dig like a, an archaeologist to find that stuff. And you might sit there and you're, you're very kind of loath to, to, to leave the edits, but things aren't quite right. And then, of course, the way I work with the music. So Jim Finer will email me ideas that he's got. And sometimes that immediately um, confirms, undermines, or enables me to, 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 to work on a sequence that, uh, that just starts um, coming alive. Because uh, I'm working with sound, image, and music all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And what is your your work in practice? Your studio is at home, isn't it? So are, are you are you a nine to five guy like Nick Cave, or are you locked away for days at a time? Well, I actually don't know. I have a studio which is in an old um, it's an old building in the old town in uh, Hastings, which is where the Chandlers used to be kind of a Chandlers. They used to make the chains for the, the for the navy. They used to make uh, the the anchors for the uh, fishing fleets and. Uh, some of the nets in there. It's a really old kind of loft, and uh, inside, because it's cold, it's dry. But inside that, I have a garden shed. I bought. I, I'm a, I am a kind of man with a shed, and so I bought this shed about 14 years ago. Flat packs arrives. It kind of assembled it within about two hours. So when things get a little bit um, cold in the winter, I just have an old electric fire in there, and so that's what I edit inside this space within a bigger space. And then Eden, my daughter, who you know, you probably well, you certainly know about. Um, she has a, a space next to me, uh, so it's like, that's slightly more kind of conventionally, kind of like an artist space. But this garden shed is where, you know, I have all of my source materials, my 16 mil, my archive, and then I have, yeah, I just have a, a, a Mac. Uh, it's a pretty good sound kind of system, mm -hmm. and, and I said to work. It's not really nine to five. I just, 
I normally get there after my swim, uh, once I've dealt with Eden in the mornings. I'm there half nine, ten, unless I'm teaching. And I'm there, I always leave after the arches. My routine, once the arches is finished, I like to try and listen to the front row, but then I get home too late again, and the miss arse moans. So I, I tend that, my routine is actually dictated by, as soon as the music happens, I start packing my bag up, got my bicycle and I cycle home. <laughs> That's the only routine I do, I doubt with the Nick Cave is that. Yeah. What a beautiful image of a, a man in a shed in, in a big space like that. Uh, my next question is one that I ask everyone who um, gives me the time for this podcast. So how do you deal with the self-doubt that every artist has when they're coming towards the end of a project? And when do you know when it's time to export that file and, and uh, put an end to it? Um. It's normally when I wake up, you know, because I like to take a lot of heroin when I'm making this stuff because you just, you, you drift off. It's like a warm blanket and you're gone for sometimes a year, two years, three years. And once you can't get any more, you wake up and think, oh, fuck it, let's just send that out in the world. That's not true, actually. I made all that bit up. Made all that bit up. Um, it, it tends to... Um, I'm good with deadlines, so if the film needed to hit a festival or somebody's shown an interest in it, um, I, I quite like the fact that you're, you know, you, you have to lock off. Um, what, what I also like about that, that kind of part of the process is that I will then take the, the project to Philip Chompy in London, where he has his uh, amazing sound studio, and that's when we start kind of track laying and mixing, and it, it, it comes, really can come alive at that, at that stage. Um, and then of course you grade it, and that in itself with Nick Gordon-Smith will come along with me, we'll start grading it, and bits which are a little bit kind of rough suddenly start working. So I, I, I like that, that's the bit that's like you know, wrapping up a, uh, a kind of baby and swaddling and sending it out into the world only to, to I always feared that you know when you open the swaddling it might end up looking like the, the thing in uh, David Lynch's eraser head uh, you know he, and it's going help me help me help me so they're the bits that but as you get older maybe with the experience I open them I think geez that's okay it's, mm-hmm. it's alive uh-huh. it's breathing and I think it's worth looking at mm-hmm. and I can't remember where Lek and the Dogs premiered um, but how, how was it the first time seeing it projected on a big screen? It, last year it was in November at the London Film Festival. Um, I was very pleased with the projection, but sadly it was uh, programmed with a short film, and the short film was almost half an hour. And uh, it was sold out, and it was very busy because the other filmmaker, who I love the work, had nothing against the work, but it was, I think, a lot of people had come along that were involved with the making of it. A lot of people couldn't get in because it was sold out. And I was slightly frustrated and irritated that, you know, what could have been just a kind of lecker the dog centric uh, projection turned into a kind of almost a three hour kind of marathon because the the other filmmaker did a Q&A and and then suddenly all the seats popped up and at least 40 people left so I, I was angry and anxious and disappointed but ultimately the film kind of carried itself and um, Xavier was there, Lec was there with his wife and his daughter and I think um, for me it was it was a real honour to have them there and, and he I think was very very happy with it and he's coming back in a couple of weeks time to present the film down in Hastings we have a little cinema down there so mm. and you know I've, I've seen it since then in festivals and in particular what I loved is there was a, a version French version in uh, Geneva about a month ago and they showed it as the uh, last film uh, in terms of the Earth trilogy so we had Filthy Earth on 35 mil. We had Ival at 35 mil, and then we ended with Lekking the Dogs, which, albeit that it was DCP, um, there's bits of it which look even rougher than the, the, the other two 35 mil films. And, and I love that, and they did a great job with subtitling. So, uh, yeah, that, I think that so far that's been my favourite screening. Yeah, good. And how important is it for you to tour with the work and, and you know, take the time to kind of go abroad and tour the UK to 
Do the Q&As at the end, for example. I, I think if I don't do that, then with this kind of work, it would be impossible to program it. Uh, and it's not that I have to explain it afterwards. But I was talking to a friend a couple of days ago, and it's a bit like being in a band, and it's the difference between the band turn up and they play live, or they give somebody a CD to put on in the auditorium. And I, th I think, you know, it's not that... I think the work doesn't always need explaining, and I am a little bit loath to explain it. But what I love about it is, is meeting people like yourself and meeting people that have kind of... You know, it's a small fan base, but there are people that really care about what I do. And, 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 and this kind of work is in its death throes. You know, I think that Jason Wood and Home, particularly at Manchester, you know, they, they, he worked really hard, and Home have worked really hard in making sure that there are still places willing to give this kind of work a chance. And I think... I, I'd like to think, you know, to go right back to the beginning of this, podcast when you were talking about Mark Commode and various other, you know, even people like Nigel Andrews from the Financial Times, mm -hmm. who was completely blown away by it, is that uh, you know, they're jaded, that perhaps they're old, perhaps, and they go along to one of those press screenings, perhaps, you know I suspect it might just be a link online but they, they look at the work and you know, they're, they're judging it quite often with the same eyes and ears as something like Jurassic Park 5 or whatever number we're up to and, and for some of them, a piece of work like this for instance for the Times Critic, it just, it's anathema there's just there's no way on earth that they would ever want to sit through this, so if I'm not there I kind of feel, and it's a privilege, it is a privilege that I have, I've made time, I want to make time to, um, to just expand on, on, on film and maybe contextualise it a bit, bit more within the context of the book there is this book that uh, I'll get you a copy of it's called the Earthworks Bookworld and I'm selling a few of those on Ruth um, and it's, 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 it's really nice to feel that there's some closure to this 20 year project it was 20 years ago that I first came up um, I was reading Emile Zola's La Terre and that's when the outsider in Emile Zola's La Terre who's called Jean uh, slowly morphed into Lec and so here we are 20 years later with, with Lec at the end of his journey what's next it's a couple of things, really. Uh, there's uh, I, Earlier in this year, I was up on the Isle of Harris with Ian Sinclair, Anonymous Bosch, and we were delivering back to um, the beach from where it came, a whale bum box. And that was documented. Most of, most of that journey was in the car. Um, but that's, that's something that uh, will be edited by the end of this year to, to kind of come up probably with Ian's, uh, Ian's written uh, a kind of uh, a book around the ideas of the whale bum box. But for me, I'm beginning to crank up this notion of doing a Gallivant 2. So my daughter will be 32 in two years' time. Uh, instead of having Gladys, who was 80 when we made Gallivant, it would be my mother-in-law and my uh, wife's mother, who by then will be about 82. Mm -hmm. So we'll have a 32-year-old and an 82-year-old woman, and we'll be travelling around the UK in an anti-clockwise direction uh, in a camper van. Uh, but probably doing things like this, streaming it online. We'll have a blog, you know, we'll have a website, uh, and we'll be shooting completely digitally and we'll be on the road for three months. And it, that, that will kind of be a nice bit of closure in terms of the journey works, where it all began 25 years ago, in two years' time, when I first made Gallimard. Then I can die peacefully. <laughs> and on that note, Andrew, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you very much for your time. A pleasure, Jason. And hopefully we'll walk again up in, uh, in Hoyk at some point. Into the Mothlight is a Charles S. Bravo production. You can follow us on Twitter at the Mothlight Pod. Email your questions and comments to mothlightpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at Mothlight Podcast. Like us, rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast isn't sponsored by anyone. Perhaps you can do something about that. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.